You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. It's good to see everybody here this morning. I'm glad that uh, people didn't follow the lead on Facebook, where it said people should be more excited about church than the Super Bowl today. So if your pastor makes a really good point, pour a bucket of Gatorade over him. (laughs) So I'm glad nobody took that literally uh, so far. (laughs) Somebody block these doors back there. (laughs) So I am glad to see everybody here today. And uh, I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done for us. Because of what he's done, we have fellowship, and we have friendship, and we have peace, and we have joy that the world can't give. Uh, it only comes through Jesus. How many of you discovered something about yourself on Friday night at the What's My Type, uh, uh, whatever it was, class, seminar, or something? Raise your hands if you discovered something about yourself. How many are in the best group? How many have the best personality? All right, okay. We have that settled now. It was a lot of fun uh, to discover our strengths, and to learn how to appreciate each other. I encourage you to do that. Um, We're in week number 22 in Romans, and I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, preparing for and delivering messages and sermons on this book so far. It is a a difficult book. A lot of uh, preachers stay away from Romans because it is very deep and theologically uh, profound, and the words in it are eternal, uh, but every, every part of God's Word is, is good. And uh, let me just say this about, about Romans and actually a lot of the epistles in the New Testament. Uh, Paul has given many, many chapters now. We're going to start in chapter 8 of a theological background for who we are in Christ. And then the last few chapters gets very practical. Like Romans 12 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. One, one time for a Sunday school contest, I memorized the whole chapter, chapter 12, and want a big old Bible, and, and uh, it's very practical. Each, the, each verse has one or two sermons in it. But you can't just go to the rules before you have the relationship down. Really, you don't, because rules without relationship equals one of two things. Rules without relationship equals rebels or robots. So if you have a bunch of rules and you don't have relationship, you could either turn into a little robot, a little legalistic Pharisee, and follow all the rules but have no love for God, or you could just completely rebel all together. Does that make sense? But rules with relationship equal um, a wonderful, uh, redeeming friendship, partnership with Almighty God. So don't forget that Romans is about the gospel, and the gospel is about Jesus. So last week, Paul delivered a great sermon. I listened to it on um, my, the flight back here from, from Seattle last week. By the way, thanks for praying for me. I went to see my mom in Florida last week. She, she is in her final days. We don't know how much longer she has. It could be two months or two years. We don't know. Uh, but it was good to be with my family there and, and, and be there with them. And then I flew to Seattle. Terry was sick last week, so she didn't join me there to minister at a new church that we... Uh, are, are engaging with, partnering with in Gig Harbor, Washington. They've been going two years, and they had 70 people there. It was a wonderful blessing, wonderful sense of excitement and anticipation and joy. But I listened to Paul's sermon on the plane back, 
And the overwhelming point, the idea that I got from Paul in his message last week was this, that next week Steve is going to answer the question to all the stuff that I bring up. <laughs> I gave him a hard time about that. So, because last week it was a difficult uh, section of Scripture on sin and the effects of sin. And so Paul assures us that all believers have the power to overcome sin, and we have the assurance that we finally will be rescued from this evil world. And so, but he includes the reminder that in this world we're going to have uh, tension, constant tension, because of the sinful nature that's still within us. Now, when God created us in the, in the Garden of Eden, He created us without sin, and we had fellowship with God. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. Wouldn't that be awesome? And then sin entered the picture, and since that time, all of us are born into sin. That wasn't God's original intention for us. It was to have peace with Him and, and to have relationship with Him, and it will be at the culmination of the ages. Right now, we live in this temporal space-time continuum we call planet Earth, and it's a tough thing that we live into and are born into and we have to deal with. So the question that arose last week when Paul preaches, are we to spend our entire lives defeated by sin? And Paul's answer is a resounding no, we don't have to be. So the last verse of chapter 7 says this, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So in this coming chapter, we're going to start in today, chapter 8, Paul describes our life of victory and hope, and every believer has that because of what Jesus has done. So let's read in chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, starting 1 through 16. It's a bit lengthy, but I'm going to stop and comment on it as we go, and then a couple of follow-up practical things toward the end. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to this word. We cannot understand your eternal truths without the help that your Holy Spirit promised to provide us. So Holy Spirit, please lead us and guide us into all truth now as we open up your life-giving word. In Jesus' name, amen. This is reading out of the New Living Translation. So, because of that, there is... No condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. The King James Version says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that belong to Jesus Christ, to them that are in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So up until this point, Paul has only mentioned the Holy Spirit twice. After this time, he's really bringing in this idea that we live by the Spirit, that we're led by the Spirit. After this time, he talks about the Holy Spirit 19 times. Verse 3, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do, he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us 
by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. The requirement of the law was this. God wrote this into the fabric of the universe, so to speak. His eternal truths and His eternal law. And here's what it was. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin or forgiveness of sin. If you ever watched The the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or read the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, you will see that when Aslan, who is a picture of Jesus there in in the analogy, the whole book is an analogy of the kingdom of God, Aslan had to die for, take his place. But the more ancient law they talk about, that's God's law, is that if it's an innocent sacrifice, uh, then, then it's going to cover the situation there. So what the requirement of the law was, was that something innocent had to pay for our sin. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel sacrificed a little lamb or a dove or something like that, uh, they would come to the priest, they would confess their sins, the, the priest would lay his hands on the animal, imparting the person's sin to that animal, and then the animal had to die because of the person. Messed up. That was just a picture of the perfect sacrifice that was to come in Christ Jesus. Jesus was innocent. He never sinned. He died for you. He died for me. And this requirement of the law was fully satisfied before God. Now, the theological terms, if you want to impress your friends, propitiation and expiation. So that means that means that not only was the payment fully paid for, the sin, our sin was fully paid for at the cross, but God was fully satisfied. All right? So here's the difference between full payment and full satisfaction. Suppose somebody wrongs you. Suppose somebody did um, uh, hit you. <laughs> or something spoke bad about you. And then uh, they came and they apologized and asked for your forgiveness. And so you say, I forgive you, because we know as believers we're supposed to forgive and walk in forgiveness and not hold anything against anybody. So we say, I forgive you. I'll tell you what, the payment has been made. They recognize their sin. They recognize their error. They apologize. They ask for forgiveness. You forgave them. It's paid for, just like that. But inside, you're still going, like this. Some more than others. If you're a J, maybe. If you're a P, maybe not. So after a year or two, you realize that person really meant their apology. They've been very kind and generous and loving and, and, and toward me, and they've demonstrated over and over and over that they truly did repent and you go, finally, it hits, hits you or dawns on you that I, I'm satisfied. Not only is it paid for, but I'm satisfied. So God poured out his punishment, his anger, his wrath on his only son who he loved based on our sin. And so the sin was paid for by the shedding of innocent blood. But at the same time, God was fully satisfied. It was done. It's over. And at that point, Jesus heard the bells of heaven ringing and he said, it is finished. He did what he came to do. He was the perfect sacrifice, the atonement 
for our sin. So, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. Paul's going to repeat himself about four times here. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile toward God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. That's justification. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Jesus defeated sin and death before we didn't have a choice. We were bound by, we were controlled by our sinful nature. Now we have the Spirit of God living in us And we can still sin, but we don't have to. We're not obligated to. We're not bound to. We're not imprisoned to this law of sin that controlled our bodies once before. You can't tempt a dead man. And we died to ourselves. And we were buried with Christ. And we rose again to walk in newness of life. For if you live by its dictates, you'll die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. What a great assurance we have. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba, Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. That is a rich and a deep and a powerful passage of Scripture. The Preacher's Outline Study Bible has a comment on that section. It says this, This is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Its subject cannot be overemphasized. And that is this, The power of God's Spirit in the life of the believer. If the believers need anything, they need the power of God's Spirit. Moses said, God, if you don't go before us, we're not going to take a step. We as believers are in this process of becoming more and more Christ-like, being led by His Spirit. So, wow. Uh, Three things, and then a fourth thing, some practical stuff. Number one, no condemnation. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. 
When you say yes to Jesus, when you give Jesus your life and Jesus declares you righteous, there is no condemnation. Sentence commuted. Guilt lifted. Judgment nullified. All those things, you can walk in freedom. You can cast off that heavy burden that you had, that backpack of the stuff where you know that you've messed up in the past. And when you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, please save me. I know that your sacrifice was enough. It satisfied God. It paid the penalty. And now I can walk free from guilt. I don't have to worry about all the rules and regulations which couldn't save me anyway. And now I can walk in freedom before Almighty God. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Because he set you free. Now, sometimes we feel condemned because of the enemy. When I say the word Satan, I'm not talking about necessarily Satan himself. Satan, from what we know, the scripture tells us, was an archangel in heaven. His name was Lucifer. He got a third of the angels to rebel against Almighty God. God cast them out. There wasn't some big struggle. It wasn't like, ooh, like this. Was God going to lose? No. It was God casting out these created beings that He created because they rebelled. And so within that network, there seems to be angels that are more powerful than other angels, and those angels are more powerful than other angels. I don't know. I can't see it. A few times in Scripture, people saw the armies of the Lord surrounding them and things like that, but we don't see it very often. But there are powers and principalities that we wrestle against, Paul says. We need to be aware of that. Paul says the enemy goes around like a a lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And our struggle is not with our kids or with our spouse or our neighbor or things like that. Our struggle is, is with the enemy who's constantly whispering in our ear. That's his big weapons. He only has two weapons. He's a liar. Satan is a liar. So when I say Satan, it could be the powers, it could be the principalities, it could be all the, you know, that stuff. I don't know what it looks like. If you want a really scary book that has all that in it, read uh, This Present Darkness, something like that. It's one guy's idea of what it looked like. It may not look like that, but the idea that we struggle against powers and principalities is real. The devil hates you. He hates your kids. He hates this church. Anytime anybody represents Jesus, uh, you young people at school, when you're representing Jesus, the devil will do whatever he can to discourage you, to disrupt you, to uh, get you out of the way, to get you to quit. The devil's a liar. The Bible says that he's a father of all lies. He lies all the time. To combat a lie, you need truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. The truth will lift that burden off of you. Many of you have struggled with burdens for far too long. You don't have to carry that burden. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Not rest for your body, 
Not rest for your spirit. Rest for your soul. That's where the struggle is. The ongoing struggle between our spirit and our natural man inside of us. Jesus said that he came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the devil's a liar. We combat lies with truth. Number two, the devil is an accuser. He's an accuser. The difference between that is accusing you of something. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. You are a jerk. And we know we are. Does that make sense? We know what we are. And, and, and just like we don't like our spouse or anybody else to tell us the things we've done wrong, I, we know ourselves how bad we can be. Thank you very much. I don't need the devil whispering in my ear either all the time, but he does. He's the, he's the accuser. So when you're saying, you're, you're such a knucklehead, you're such a, you know, why did you do that like this? It's probably not you. It could be you. Maybe he just got the record spinning and you just carried on, but he accuses you. And here's the weapon we have against his accusations is the blood of Jesus. You can go, that's right, Mr. Devil. I am a jerk, but it's covered by the blood. Jesus paid the penalty for my jerkness. He did. And he said it's finished and it's done and it's over. The enemy, the devil is everything that God is not. And when the devil comes against us, we have the Spirit of God living in us. Don't let the devil tell you that he's just as powerfully bad as God is good. That's a lie. Remember, he's a liar. God is the creator. Satan or Lucifer is created. He's a created being. If anything, the opposite of of Satan would be Michael or Gabriel, one of the other archangels. They're powerful beings, yes. God created them. And I don't want to mess with them. And I'm not going to offer a reviling judgment against Satan, like to not think that he has power. He does. Even Michael or the archangel wouldn't offer reviling judgment against the devil. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. So, we have the Spirit of God working in us. Satan is not the opposite. There's not some cosmic yin and yang where God is opposing the devil and he might lose. Uh, the opposite of God is nothing because God is everything. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. Nothing is the opposite of everything. Don't let the devil lie to you. The Bible says that greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You have the power of Almighty God working in you. So we have this uh, wonderful freedom to walk around not condemned because our assurance is in Jesus. John, the apostle, said in 1 John 3, our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings. It's not about your feelings. It's about the truth of what God said. I have set you free. There is therefore now no condemnation 
to them that are in Christ Jesus. And number two, and you are free. You are free. Believe that. Verse 2 says, And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So the Spirit of life here, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, those are all the Holy Spirit. It's one part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, eternally existent in three persons. All right? Jesus said, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not a, not a, not a, a multi-personality God. That's polytheism. Uh, not, not one with split personalities. I don't know what you call that. Psychotheism. Um, he's one God, eternally existent in three persons. We don't understand it because we're finite. He's eternal. So we have to just let it, let it be at that. Um, John Newton said, how is it that there's three candles, yet one light? So we just let it be. There's one God eternally existent in three persons. The Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. And he's living in you when you have said yes to Jesus. How did this happen? First, the law of the Spirit set you free. What both the law and us personally were powerless to do, God did for us. And second, we are free after which the Spirit of God lives in us. Uh, so we actually live according to the Spirit that we saw in verse 4 and also Galatians 2.20. So we have this choice within us. Number three, life or death. We have this choice. Uh, verses 12 to 14, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you'll die. But if you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Isn't that amazing? We are not bound to what we could not control before. We were bound to, we were powerless to live by the deeds of the flesh. When we said yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God lives within us, and now we have this wonderful choice. We're not obligated anymore. So if we do it, we don't have anybody to blame. It's our choices. Paul will talk more about it in the next couple of chapters. He's going to go back and forth. He's going to have this great, one of the best conversations with yourself that I've ever heard. So, um, But choosing to be led by the Spirit will help give us victory, not in our strength, but in His strength. And this is where our will comes in, into play. The Life Application Bible Commentary had a, had a nice uh, piece on this. Paul divides people into two categories. Those who let themselves be controlled by their sinful nature and those who follow after the Holy Spirit. We would be in the first category if Jesus hadn't offered us a way out. After we say yes to Jesus, we want to continue following Him because His way brings life and peace. We must consciously choose to center our life on God. We have within us what is called a will. Some theologians say we have a free will. Some say we have a will. I would tend to the will because if it's a free will, that means it's independent from God and God is sovereign, so we can't do anything that's independent from Him. So anyway, did you follow that? Here's, here's my take on it. God is sovereign. He's the King of the universe. And in His sovereignty, He chose to give us a will. 
So we can choose or not. David says um, in the Psalms, bless the Lord, O my soul. In today's language, you know what that would be? Bless the Lord, I tell myself. In other words, we can tell, we can choose our will. We can decide one way or the other. All right? So when we have a tough time getting ready for church, and I know what it's like, and I know the enemy seems to attack right before church to get us riled up about something, to get the kids delayed or the husband delayed or the wife delayed. It's never both. Like, well, sometimes it is, and then they don't show up at all. But usually it's one pushing the other one. Or there's some kind of contention, or something happens in the car, or too many red lights, or, you know, the coffee spills in the back seat, or, you know, just whatever it is. There's always something. It's always something, right? So then we come in through the front door, and we go, hi, like, how are you? Everything's fine, like this. And then we go into worship. And we know that our lives are worship. It's not just the singing part, but our lives are worship. But when we come together and worship together and sing together, inside we're going, I don't want to do this. All right? Well, here, let me tell you something. It's not about you. It's about Him. He is worth it. That's where we get the word worship, is, is from worthship. He is worthy to receive our worship. Because He is Almighty God. He's the one that loves us. He's the one, he's the one that demonstrated His love to us before we even knew Him. It's, and we have this choice. So David says, I will offer a sacrifice of praise. Who's the sacrifice? Jesus already was. It's me. I'm going to sacrifice and say, my hands don't want to be up, but they're going to be up because you are worthy. And because I love you. And I'm going to sing my heart out, even if I sing a joyful noise unto the Lord. I'm going to worship you with everything that's within me because I love you. That's where our will comes into play. How do we do that? How do we train ourselves in godliness and constantly rely on the Holy Spirit? Well, we can. Number four, we can be led by the Spirit. So here's a few ideas. Number one, ask for help. It's always nice to ask. And you men are notoriously famous for not asking for help. Ask for help. By the way, I want to brag on on you guys. There's a men's breakfast this Saturday morning, 8 o'clock in this room. I hope all you guys come. I hope you bring your teenage boys uh, or your grandsons, uh, neighbors, invite somebody. It's a good time for guys to come together, uh, have a great meal, hear a word from the Lord. It's short. Saturdays are important. We try to get out of here. We try to make it worth it for you to be here. Uh, but I just want to brag on you guys. If you look around the room, it's about 50-50, male and female. And um, how many of the gals are glad that guys are here today? No. I would, let me ask that again. How many of the gals are glad that the guys are here today? All right. You have fans, all right? The church in America right now is about 67 to 68% female. The evangelical church in America is about 67, 68% female. You guys have broken the mold. There's all kinds of God-loving real men in this church, and I'm very thankful for you guys. All right. Number one, ask for help. Number two, walk in humility. We don't know it all, and we don't have it all, and we haven't arrived Let's be consciously humble before Almighty God. 
The Bible says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Our job is to humble ourselves. His job is to exalt us. I believe that if we do his job of exalting ourselves, that he'll have to do our job of humbling us. And he does a way better job than we could ever do. I would rather have him do the exalting part. Number three, we look to his word. We look to his word for guidance. He, his, his word is truth. In the Psalm, Psalm 119, that whole chapter, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, it talks about the word of God, the benefits of the word of God. One of them says, my favorite one is toward the end, it says, the sum of your word is truth. The bottom line, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, your word is truth, O oh God. And so, number, number one, ask for help. Number two, walk in humility. Number three, look to his word. And number four, obey. When you're trusting God to lead you and you hear the whispers and the closer do you get to God and, and, and you begin to hear his voice through the noise. One of the things I love about my wife uh, is her laugh. I love her laugh. And she's got a signature laugh. And in a crowd of hundreds of people, I can pick out her laugh when she laughs. Do you know why? Because my tuning gear is tuned toward that laugh. We can learn how to pull the Holy Spirit's whispers out of the noise and out of the busyness in our life. And the more you do it, the more you rely, the more you see that it's true, that actually, oh, I did hear from the Lord. That really is amazing. And so we trust Him and our faith it grows and enlarges and builds all the time. So in obedience, make sure we obey instantly when we have clear direction. When God says something, let's obey. So get moving. Obedience means get moving. Obedience doesn't mean sit. Obedience means get moving. You, what on earth good is it to turn the wheels on a car if the car's not moving? All right? If we're going to obey God, we need to get moving and turn in the direction he said. So where do we need to move? There's a lot of answers in this room. Maybe... Uh, We've got some anger issues. God, help me to be led by your Spirit. Help me to make the right decisions. Maybe it's diet decisions. Maybe it's work decisions. Maybe it's messiness or addictions or something. It's not what I'm asking just now. It's what has God told you? Get moving. Obey on that and get moving. When was the last time you actually prayed? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. A lot of times people pray the prayer, Dear God, what's your will for my life? That's not a bad prayer. Here's a better prayer. God, what is your will? What is your will? And how does my life fit into that? We want to fit into his plan. I don't want to make him fit into my plan. His plan is way better. So that's the gospel. It's the good news. We don't have to be subject to this horrible guilt and condemnation that religion puts on you, that the world puts on you, that you put on yourself. We don't have to be subject to that. He sets you free from the law of sin and death. But the truth is, people are getting more and more disillusioned out there. There's a lot of people that are just tired of it all. There's people becoming more disillusioned with the way the world is headed. There's a lot of middle-aged men out there that realize they're not going to be presidents, so what's the use? Or an athlete or a rock star or a billionaire, I don't know, whatever. 
There's a lot of gals out there that are stuck in a passionless marriage. And you don't want to stay there. There's a lot of teenagers that are being assaulted on every side by godless philosophies out there that are trying to suck you away and pull you away from your faith in Jesus. There's a book out there by a guy named Dave Kraft, and it's called Leaders Who Last. And the byline under it says that 80% of those who commit their self to the Lord's work will not finish. 80% won't finish. What they started, they won't finish. God has given you what it takes to finish your course. Like Paul said, King Solomon went through there. We'll be done in just a minute here. King Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. He was the richest man who ever lived. He was the most powerful man in the world at that time. He was the son of King David. And when Solomon became king as a teenager, God came to him at night and said, Solomon, you can have anything you want. I could think of a lot of things if God came to me and said that. First thing I would say, God, okay, all my wishes would come true. That's the thing I want, all right? So probably can't ask that one. Solomon asked for wisdom. And God said, Solomon, because you asked for wisdom, I'm not going to only give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you fame, all those things. So Solomon started out good, and toward the end of his life, he got disillusioned. And here's what he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. King James says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. And in the future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. That's a real typical attitude of so many people today. They've just kind of given up. Many of you said yes to Jesus years ago, and your wheels are just spinning just like this. I want to encourage you that even though... Solomon tried wealth and he became the wealthiest man that ever lived. And he tried wisdom and science and understanding and philosophy and he excelled more than anybody else in all of history. He, he got married a thousand times. He was into sensuality. None of it satisfied. Someone once said this, that every human being has a God-sized hole in their heart. And nothing will fill it but their creator. People are searching for something, but it's meaningless. 
unless Jesus is in the center. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 15, it's toward the end here, he said, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. You know what that means? Daddy. Papa. Some of you may not have had a great dad. Some of you may have had a great dad. But we all can have the best one. The creator of this universe, almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, is big enough to know you and to invite you into his presence. Isn't that amazing? We serve an amazing God. I want to say to you today that we can have that relationship with him. A wonderful, God-honoring relationship and also a close intimacy with him. Friendship. A healthy relationship with a father you love. And that happens when we say yes to Jesus. And you've heard that before. Here's what it means to say yes to Jesus. And many of you have done this. Maybe not in this order or these exact same words, but you've repented of your sin. Repentance just means we were going one way, now we're going the other way. Repentance means to turn around. We were headed our way, now we're headed God's way. We haven't arrived. We're not there. We're not perfect, but we're headed that. Our heart is positioned toward Him. That's repentance. We turn to Him. We believe in Jesus. We believe that He died on the cross for our sins. We realize that we are sinners and we need to ask for His forgiveness. So we turn to Him. We repent, turn to God, believe in Jesus, and we trust Him completely. His invitation is for all of us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that's people, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, that is a broad invitation. Whoever believes in Him, whoever places their trust in Him, whoever says yes to Him, that moment, that instant, they turn from death to life. They turn from darkness to light. And they have hope and they have future. Their sin package is off of them and they don't have to walk under the weight of guilt and condemnation anymore. They can walk freely in Him. That's how you become a Christ follower. And if you can't remember all that, you say yes. What that guy up there just said? Yes, I believe that. Some of you right now might be saying yes in your heart to him. For the first time in your life, you might be saying yes. Jesus, I want to follow you. Please forgive my sin. I trust you with my life. I want to to follow you and serve you for for the rest of my life with every ounce of strength that I have. I want to serve you and represent you well. I'm not going to quit. And I'm not going to do it in my own strength because I can't. The Holy Spirit will be with me every step of the way. And I'll depend on him. I'll be led by the Holy Spirit. And I will not go back. That's my prayer. If you just said that right now, I'm going to be at the door back there. I want you to come and give me a hug and say, I said yes to Jesus today. Please do that. If you have any questions, when we're done with this last song here, or even during the song, you can come up and stay here. People will pray with you or answer questions you have about a relationship with Jesus. Father, thanks for this word today. We thank you.
that you are eternal. You're an absolutely amazing God, yet you know each one of us individually. And Father, today, we thank you that we don't have to walk under the load of guilt and shame and condemnation anymore, that we can have freedom in Jesus. We once again, we say, yes, Jesus, you are our Lord. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.